Today I'm talking with Drew Sample of the Sample Hour, or as I like to call it, the Drew Sample Hour. I think you Drew, kept calling it the Drew Sample Show, actually. The Drew Sample Show, that's yeah. what I like to call it. Drew, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started podcasting? Yeah, so I'm going to try. Usually when people ask me this question, it's like it goes from this depressing story to me to where I am today. So uh, I started podcasting in 2012. Um, I was a big fan of Joe Rogan's podcast and felt like I had zero light at the end of the tunnel for myself. And I was looking for a desperately looking for a way to creatively express myself. Um, kind of hated my life and hated where I was in life and the podcast was like the first step I took in the direction for doing something for me to make a difference in my life and to form my own opinions and become my own man, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I think it's the same for me. Like I started podcasting when I got laid off, uh, not laid off, but laid up from work. I started podcasting when I got laid up with uh, an illness at work and I had about a week off and I was just going crazy watching Netflix. So I decided to sit down and muck around with the computer. I've been on a lot of other shows before I started my own podcast. And I think that sort of gave me the inspiration. Plus I had all the equipment. Um, This is something that's probably taken four years to get going for me. But so with your podcast, The Sample Hour, um, what is like the theme of it? So that's a good question, man. It's really hard to explain to people. I think a lot of times, um, and that's something I really like about your show, man, like because it's it's very different, man. You like the way you, you present the information and you clip in all these like different people talking and you use other people's words to try to tie in so people can get more familiar with a topic that you guys are talking about because you you hit on some really deep philosophical topics that uh people it's gonna be hard for the lay person to necessarily understand and it's it's easy to get caught up in explaining it yourself um for me um, my show is, has, has been a lot of, of different, like I used to talk to a lot of comedians and I talked to a lot of anarchists and I talked to a lot of farmers. Um, and now I'm, I'm kind of talking a lot about ideas and interviewing small business owners, but, um, the best way to, to, to describe my podcast is it's, it's, it's been a recording of my journey and finding freedom in an unfree world. Um, and you know, it, I I can't niche down. I'm gonna get bored, and I won't want to do the podcast anymore. And and so, um, I I think you know whether it be I mean the big themes I think for me have been freedom and decentralization. Um, I mean that's but I I wasn't always at that point. I mean if you go back and you listen to the original episode, it's me not really knowing what the hell I'm doing, but wanting to be a podcaster to now where. It's me still not really knowing where, what direction I want to take the show in. But I think, you know, ultimately, I just had a good conversation with my good friend, uh, Charles Hugh Smith. And I think it's always just going to be me and my journey. I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think I'd, 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 I could record it in another way. I think if I, if I tried to put myself in some strict 
confines of what the show needed to be about. I couldn't, I couldn't have you on to talk about different ideas. And I think for me, I see a lot of polarization in the world. And I think for me, you know, a big political act for me was farming. So then I, I started talking and interviewing all these farmers about how I wanted to pick their brain about how I could be a, a better farmer. And I was still doing it part time. And then I started farming full time. And I was like, God, this is really boring. I don't, I don't really want to hear about what other people are doing. I, I need to figure out a way to share what I'm doing. So I started doing, I've done a few solo episodes. Um, but, you know, ultimately too, man, like I, I mean, you and I hung out quite a bit when we went to the Renegade University. Um, I had Thaddeus Russell on afterward. And we talked a lot about the working class. And we talked a lot about poor whites and poor blacks and, and uh, hillbillies and rednecks versus, as Thomas Sowell would say, you know, black rednecks or, or you know, black, black working class culture. Um, and for me, it's, it's a big deal. I think, you know, being from the Midwest and being from, you know, the Appalachian foothills, um, you know, my grandfather came up to Toledo, Ohio for industry because there was jobs and it was literally, you know, Dwight Yoakam wrote a song, read and write in route 23. And that's about most people in Ohio and their, their roots in the family and for, of their families, mine, especially my other family came from, you know, really, um, really close to the border of Kentucky and Missouri, which is, is pretty, you know, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty rural as well. Um, so, you know, for me now, I think I, I, I really have, have enjoyed kind of exploring my history, uh, and especially kind of like my region. And I, and I think it's important for me to kind of develop my voice from my region, which is why, you know, to, to kind of tie it into, you know, what we want to talk about today. Um, because I, I think regionalism is important. Like I don't, it's kind of weird, you know, when I became, uh, when I realized I was, it was more of an anarchist, but I mean, I identify with you too. Like I'm, I don't really think I am an anarchist anymore. I think I'm just myself and I think I just have my own opinions and I think I don't like government and I'm very freedom oriented, but I, th I think things are a lot more complicated and I don't want to put myself in a box, but you know, I, I never really identify as an American um, or, or that extent. Like I don't like wearing American flags or I'm not, I'm not yeehaw America or go America. Um, it's but, interesting though, isn't it? Like, yeah, you can say that from within America, like, when you're on the soil in Ohio, you can be like, well, I'm not an American, quote unquote. Yeah. Yet, as soon as you jump on a plane and fly anywhere else. I'm a damn yank. <laughs> yeah. Well, not so much that you're a damn yank, but you are automatically American. The accent, yeah. the aphorism, the, the culture. mannerisms. Yeah. You, you bring all of that with you. And it's the same for me. Like, there are aspects of Australia that are cringeworthy, without a doubt. And when I see them sort of brought up, um, like when we hung out uh, at the weekend with Thaddeus Russell in LA, there were certain things that you guys were all making fun of me for, like the way that I pronounced the letter H or... Um, oh, and, and the same with... Though. Yeah, and H. the same with Brett. Yeah, H. Um, the same with Brett when I went to um, when when we did the tour. So I did the second leg of the School Sucks Across America tour with Brett. Um, 
he kept making fun of the way I say DVDs. Um, so there are certain things that we are, yeah, we are regional creatures. Like in Australia, the, the, there's things like uh, in sports, state of origin, um, which is the closest we've, we've got to a civil war. But um, it's pretty intense. Like people will really stand for their state against the other states, even right down to when you see a license plate number, you you have all this uh, sort of prejudice built up just on that one signifier of of a different colored license plate. Uh, and is that the same for you in Ohio? Like if you see a Kansas license plate oh, or yeah. an Indianapolis? I mean, so, uh, I mean, so I'm like, I would say, I was about to say, like, I'm an Ohioan. I've never lived outside of Ohio. I lived on the border half my life, which was uh, Ohio and Michigan, which for everybody in most people in this region know that there's like a big rivalry between the University of Michigan and Ohio State. Um, and but even like living in Toledo, Michigan drivers, it was like a thing. Like people from Michigan, they would be right over the border and they would drive like assholes to everyone else, which, you know, now that I live in Columbus, you're like, and I go up there, people from Toledo can't drive either. But it's even like a city thing. Um, but people would probably say the same thing when they come to Columbus or anything like that. So I, I think especially on the highway, yeah, like what's this fucking dumbass doing from Indiana? He doesn't know what he's doing. You know, road rage. Sorry if I don't know if cussing's allowed on your show. I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, it is. Yeah. Okay. But you know what I'm saying? Like, and I'm sure you guys, because you're in Melbourne. I'm in Melbourne. Well, okay. So, but you guys say Melbourne, but we say Melbourne, right? Yeah, it's again that just comes back to the regional accents yeah. and uh, the idea of how we pronounce vowels and things like that. Like before we started recording, we were, we were talking about of all things the way that I pronounce Adidas versus how you pronounce it. Yeah, and I, I learned that because I went to England. So my grandmother, uh, my adopted grandmother, is is from Surrey, UK, and I was really close with. Um, her sister and brother-in-law, they were like a second set of grandparents to me and they, they flew me out and I stayed in, um, they live in Crawley, which is South of London and it's just North of Brighton. And, um, so I stayed there for six weeks out of, out of high school, like right after it was, um, right at the end of June. So it was like right at the end of high school. And it was funny because I was hanging out. My cousin Luke is two days younger than me and we were just making fun of the way each other talked. Like, uh. I would try to do, uh, I try to say, like, a, back then I'd try to mimic their accent. They said I'd sound Australian. And because um, they would say dog and stuff like that. But even in the UK, depending on what region you're from, but they would say Adidas and Nike. And uh, they would say Toyota Silica instead of, or Silica. And we would call it a Silica here. And, and I think, you know, regionalism, I mean, it's, it's, um, I mean, that's kind of what makes it fun is like you talk funny depending on, what area you're from um so but yeah i mean we were talking about how the brits say vitamin or schedule but then there's or you what do you say aluminum aluminum okay no we say aluminium aluminium yeah so i mean in the so i i think regionalism is interesting for that reason um but i think it goes even deeper than that i mean different regions have different values. And, and I think, you know, when it comes to decentralization, 
And kind of, and I was even thinking about this when I was getting coffee and like just tying decentralization into like the global economy. Um, and I think like you can still have a global economy and regionalism and decentralization. And I think, you know, because of the internet, it provides us an ability to not have to have all these, um, these, you know what I mean? Like look at how much international business is done on eBay without paying yeah. tariffs and everything else like that. I mean, how many, how much shit I bought, bought from China or my boots I bought from Australia. I think they're actually made in Tasmania. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't think like that's, that's kind of the beauty of the internet is we don't need, we don't, we don't need these structures for, in, I mean, like not every, I think the sooner people realize that jobs are going to not be there, and the quicker people realize, okay, what sets of skills do I need to build to, to, to be able to survive in my region? I think, so for me, like, um, I'm a small scale farmer. I, I make a living on a 15th of an acre. I do supplement my money still. Um, but I'm, I'm getting to where I don't like, I haven't even going for a full year and I, my business is, is doing about two grand a month in revenue which is great here because in my region where I live, my mortgage is only three ten forty nine a month. So, you know, when, when you look at that math, it's pretty good. And I think, but I think that's the key. Like if there's no way I could do this business, um, in California where we were paying $10 for a shitty beer. Um, you know what I mean? And, and I think that's, 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 for me, I don't, I don't value anything that they, most things that they value in California, I don't, I don't care about. I don't like, it's so annoying to me because I feel like they're, they, and, and I think that's kind of the, that's the, that is the importance of regionalism because when you look at Hollywood and, and political messages that they're pushing, it's all from their region. I mean, it's, you know, all that, most of the bullshit they push, I mean, or most of the shit about climate change and what's going to happen to the coast. I mean, I'm nowhere near the coast. Why does that, why does that affect me? Like you're the one that chose to live close to the ocean. And I mean, right. it's, it sounds heartless but from, yeah, from a point of view of like total human civilization, though, when you map out how many people live in a coastal area versus how many people don't live in a coastal area, um, it's it's really the very slim minority who don't live on the coast when you take the entire human population. Like, if if Australians stopped living on the coast, the population would go from, like, 20 million to, like, maybe 30,000 because there's just – it's really difficult to live in the vast deserts that we have and the vast rural areas that we have. One of the things that – I was thinking about while you were talking then and I was listening to you and I was thinking about this idea of regionalism working in conjunction with the global economy and the internet and things like that. And I was thinking, God, you know, if we were doing this interview in 1994 and I had a contraption or a device that enabled me to call you on the landline telephone and I could plug it into my um, cassette recorder. Like, 
the the sheer cost of that would would just defeat the purpose straight away and then distribution as well like um even if i was able to copy the tapes it's like you know versus it so if i get a hundred downloads a day for this show which i mean at this stage the show is still new so a hundred downloads a day would be an excellent day that'd be an excellent Um, day for my show yeah but let's say even if i was just to get nine like the lower end of the scale, nine downloads a day. Um, back in 1995, that would mean that I manually would have to record nine cassettes. And if I got it, even if I got it down to 20 minutes, I mean, you're still talking three hours of manual labor to produce those nine cassettes. Um, and then I've got to ship them and everything. So it's like the there is an element of regionalism I think that is really important. And then there's another element of regionalism that is kind of lost in the global economy that, that no longer has any necessity or any, you know, I I don't want to say use, but like when you think about, yeah, like values, we were talking about values, like, there are certain values in Richmond, Virginia from a hundred years ago that just even in Richmond, Virginia today have absolutely no place. Yeah. And that's the good thing about the global economy. That's the good thing about opening up the borders of communication. Uh, But at the same time, there are negatives to that. And I think one of the big ones is things like food, things like food production So we look at a character, and I say character, but a very prolific writer, a very influential person who many people won't have even heard of, and I certainly hadn't until you uh, mentioned him and brought him into my life. However, there is a film out now called Look and See with Nick Offerman, um, and many listeners will know him as Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation. And this is a film about food production based around the life of Wendell Berry. And so we I want I want to I want to really But yeah, I'm I'm excited to watch it. Sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you. Well, I just want to transition into our discussion on Wendell Berry. Um because you we were talking about uh doing a podcast together for a while and um I think that we connected really well in LA and and we have a lot of the same ideas and things like that. So it was, it was always going to be an exciting thing to do a podcast together, regardless of the topic. But the topic that you suggested um, was this article by Wendell Berry called writers and region. Um, It was originally published by the Hudson review in 1987, which obviously is special to me because that's the year that I was born. But the copy that I read was published in 2017 by Syracuse University Press, and listeners can get that in a book called Personal Essays from the Hudson Review. Now, I don't want to talk about this next character for too long. I really did a big thing. If people want to know about my ambivalence towards Jordan Peterson, they can listen to episode 10 and 11. Um, But in terms of a deeper understanding of why 
people might harbour ambivalence in the way that I do towards Jordan Peterson, this article is really appealing. This article is really appealing. Barry looks deeply into a rather brief article relating to the nature of storytelling, reflection of social and individual psyche, and all of this is done within the context of the story Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. And I think where you can draw the immediate comparison between the work of Wendell Berry and the work of Jordan Peterson would be in the way that Wendell Berry looks at Huckleberry Finn and Peterson looks at the story of Pinocchio. Um, Obviously, uh, Berry is much more efficient and economical with his words. He's a, um, he's but, a way better writer. I mean, he was he's an essayist versus Jordan Peterson, who's a clinical psychologist who's writing about clinical psychology. I think I think the the art of being an essayist is something that is is kind of coming back, but has gone away. And and I could it's you are the tangent general, so that is a tangent we could go down. But I feel like s like reading Wendell Berry kind of made me understand why i also like uh nasim nicholas taleb because he's an essayist as well or my friend charles hugh smith because i think there's there's a lot of people that blog and they just write nonsense or they just write bullshit but then there's 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 an art to being able to to take thoughts and put them together that i i can't do with writing and i think very a lot of people like uh wendell berry uh really learned how to write underneath the sky wallace stegner who is also Edward Abbey's teacher, um, which I don't know if you're familiar with Edward Abbey either, um, Nick, but Edward Abbey's pretty awesome. He wrote like the Monkey Wrench Gang and Desert Solitaire. And um, anyways, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just wanted to kind of point that out uh, just to elaborate on what you were saying about Jordan Peterson's writing versus why Wendell Berry is, he can, he has a way better way with his words. Sorry. Oh, don't apologize. I think that there is there is something to the presentation style of Jordan Peterson that's very now. Uh, he has absolutely found a way to capitalise on, on YouTube as a platform. Wendell Berry wrote this in 1987, so the platform didn't exist. But there's a couple of interesting ideas that come out of this article in particular, and we've spent a little bit of time now, probably 20 minutes, talking about regionalism. But I just want to read a quote. There is also territory of historical self-righteousness. If we, have lived, if we had lived south of the Ohio in 1830, we would have killed no Indians, violated no treaties, stolen no land. But the probability is overwhelming that if we had belonged to the generations we deplore, we would have behaved deplorably. Not to know, that is, again, to be in error and to neglect essential work, and some of this work, as before, is work of the imagination. How can we imagine our situation or our history if we think we are superior to it? So the invitation here is to read that first sentence again in light of the rest of the paragraph. However, we want to reread it without the nose. So Barry, if we're talking about his writing style, has really cleverly created one sentence that is the truth and one sentence is the desired truth or the fantastical wish. Like 
oh, you know, if I was there, I would have made the right choice. You know, if I was in Auschwitz, I would have been Schindler. I wouldn't have been a guard. Um, but the thing is that Barry wants us to reread this and, and see that if we had lived south of the Ohio in 1830, we absolutely would have killed Indians. We, we would have violated territories we and we would have stolen slaves. land. I mean, there's a good chance we would have owned slaves. Um, there's a good chance, you know what I mean? And it's, it's, if you had the money to do it, it was a great asset. I mean, like people got loans from banks to own slaves and that's, and that's what like the, the whole idea of like these people are so evil because they didn't free their slaves. Well, just try giving your house away and have a mortgage. You can't do it because yeah. And I'm not saying it's okay. It's definitely not okay. But if, if you have mortgages out on people that are considered your property, you can't necessarily just give them away and not not owe the bank something or not have have a you know what I mean? So that was the best way for people to free their slaves back then was to will them their freedom. And um so I think it's like this idea of like go out and buy a brand new car, buy a sports car, buy the most expensive car you can just barely afford. Don't get insurance on it and write it off and see how the next 10 years of your life is going to pan out. You know, you're going to be making payments every single month that are huge on a car that you no longer have. It's 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 the same kind of idea. It's like okay, sure, a slave is a human being, but we can't historicize this. We can't like I think, and this is where Thaddeus Russell does a really good job of demonstrating that, yeah, these people were slaves, but there was still a culture that the slaves had. I, I don't like I don't know how to put it without sounding extremely racist, but well, but I, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, there was a whole culture to break through. I mean, there was so many my family, i'll I'll come out and say it. There's a recording I need to put out, like my um man i think it was like my great great grandmother remembers growing up that there was still i think my family could afford one slave and they had a slave and then she was free and she was a part of the family i mean she she stayed around and lived with the family and it was it, and she didn't want to leave and i think you know just like harriet tubman there's that famous quote by harriet tubman i would have freed more slaves if they only would have realized that they could have that they could have been free and I think, and so there's, there's just this idea of the culture and I'm not trying to, to stand up for the culture um, because I, I don't, I, obviously I don't agree with it. I mean, we're both freedom oriented people or freedom minded people. Um, so like, obviously. I, the, don't, I don't think there's any justification for owning another human being, no. but at the same time, there has to be, there has to be a recognition that we are actually living in a Goldilocks era of history. And that is that no, not many people in the industrial Western world own slaves today. It is kind of an, it does still exist in, in some ways slavery is worse today than it was back then because it's gone underground. And, you know, there are documentaries out there that touch on, the sex slave industry. Um, you know, if you ever want to go down a dark rabbit hole, look into uh, long haul truckers, interstate truckers, and the kind of nefarious 
things that occur at those desolate and isolated truck stops. And the reason I know that is when I was finishing high school, I wanted to either become a bricklayer or a truck driver. And I was talked out of it. I was like, no, you're too smart. You have to go to university. You have to like expand your knowledge. You have to do this. You have to do that. And now you read and I was like, philosophy for fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like if only I'd known, right, because I could have been podcasting 12 hours a day and making money driving a truck. But that issue aside, that regret aside, um. I mean, I'm really glad that I didn't become a truck driver because some of the things that happen out in the bush, um, and it's no different in America, some of the things that happen out there are really deplorable. Um, but at the same, so that's one side of the argument, right? So you have things like uh, in popular culture, the idea of a slave being whipped or lynched. I mean, lynching is probably the worst. And if you've seen 12 Years a Slave and there's that scene where the lynching happens and it's just kind of like in the background, people are just still going about their day while the guy is like his feet are dangling and, and all that. I mean, yeah, okay, okay. We're not – you and I are not trying to say that was okay, but at the same time, there is that unacknowledged aspect of – the culture of the 1830s with slavery in particular, where a lot of the kind of interplay between the two communities, that of the slave owners and the slaves, were not necessarily fully antagonistic. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think sometimes, man, I think that um, our current culture, in my opinion, does this thing to where they grandize, they, they tell something about history in this grandiose way to make it way worse than what it was when it actually happened was already appalling and disgusting. And there's no need to, to make it worse. And I think that um, that stuff did happen and I, I wasn't around, but you know, like um, you know, the fact about roots is such a big thing in my culture, like roots, you know, we watched roots. I watched roots as a kid. It was something that we watched and we watched it in school and we were told that this was a factual story. But you know, when you go and you look at the history of roots, Alex, Alex Haley, who wrote roots, um, before he even wrote his book had sold a, the story to CNN to uh, NBC. And it was, and then they actually did research on it and found out that it was, 100% fabricated and all the DNA research he did was bullshit and all this other stuff. Now, is it it's still a good story and it's still something that's powerful and it's still something that I recommend people watch. Um but it's it's just like um there's something similar you played the preview for it, The Power of One. I remember watching that movie as a little kid and that was like a different regional thing and it was a different uh a different tragedy within a different region. And, um, you know, I, I think that, I think it's, it's important for people to realize that, man, things have been fucked up all over the place for a long time. And, you know, well, that's, that's what I was saying about the Goldilocks period. I mean, if you yeah. go through all of human history, there are things that like slavery 
and and exactly what I was saying as well. Like I I can't decouple this in my mind. I want to go down one path, but I'm immediately blocked and have to stay on this other path, which is that the underground slavery networks that exist today are perhaps more pernicious and worse than yeah. they ever have been in human history. And yeah. we want to congratulate ourselves and pat ourselves on the back and say, you know what? We are so much better than our ancestors. Grandpappy was a fucking dick. He owned slaves. But, you know, as I'm applying my beard oil and putting on my ironically worn uh, Sims 1 promotional T-shirt, um, I'm way better. And it's like the fact is we're heading towards radical inequality in our society, like rapidly heading towards radical inequality. The millennial generation, you know, however you want to look at that, and, you know, people think of the millennials as being the social justice warriors or being uh, spoiled. There's, or, there's always been spoiled social justice warriors in every generation, and every generation before them bitched about them. I mean, it's like, it's just so funny because just like you were, I mean, even in your show, I mean, talking about science and how everything happens in cycles, nothing is linear, man. Like everything is cycles. There's every, you know what I mean? Like it, it history, things always repeat themselves. They just have different faces or different forms or different things that they want to, they want to complain about. I mean, Thomas Sowell wrote the quest for cosmic justice, I think in the eighties, and it was all about what is the idea of social justice and, and how it's a, it's this idea of, of this cosmic thing where we need to have equality for everyone. And, and, and I'm not saying that I'm for inequality, but I, what I'm saying is, is that people need to realize that, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about this is that the 80, 20 principle is something that happens in nature everywhere. And that it's always, you know, when you break down even wealth structures, 80%, of of the wealth is always in the top 20% and then you break down that top 20% and 80% again is still in the top 20%. And I think um you know sometimes yeah the the Prado distribution yeah the, the Prado distribution. Yeah. And um and you know the, and I always just called it the 80 you know the 80 20 principle but I remember learning about this like 10 years ago not really fully understanding it. Um but I, I you know I think that it's it's uh it's easy for people to, you know, I mean, like I grew up super liberal because my mom is, my mom believes, like my mom is like a person who actually lives her values and it, she does it to the detriment of herself in a lot of ways because she, she, you know, she thinks we should pay taxes and, and all this stuff and believes in the, in the, in, in government and that it really wants to take care of us and everything. And she's a social worker and and I see what, her career is kind of done to her health wise. And, uh, and I see that, you know, my mom wants to take care of everybody but herself in a lot of ways. And I think that's kind of what the social justice kind of comes from. And it's always come from is this guilt of, well, I have it so good. Why do I have it so good when so many others don't? Um, you know, before the millennial generation came up, we had another word for what we now call social justice warriors. And that was, or n another phrase rather than another word, but that was the Christian values. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't so, even think about that. Christian values, interesting. So it's, it's, it, 
again, it's not like these things are separate. It's not like these things can be. And this is what annoys me about the way that we look at things like evolution. Um, like we can acknowledge that evolution takes billions of years, at the very least hundreds of thousands of years. Yet we want to look back 20 years and say, well, we've evolved. And it's like you can't apply the timeline of natural selection. And again, I'm ambivalent towards Darwinism very much so. I think there are some positives maybe in that paradigm, uh, but I think that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Darwin was an extreme racist. And this is, again, another intersection that maybe we can we can think about as we move forward here is does being a slave owner necessarily indicate a level of racism or, you know, like I don't really know what to do with this topic of slavery at all, Drew. <laughs> I think that we need to sort of look at it as Barry is trying to point out to us in this article, Writers and Region, in terms of looking back on history and identifying deplorable behavior that occurred based on contemporary morality, historicizing the past and applying our contemporary knowledge and our contemporary social relations to past events, it doesn't work. And I think this is where even people run into trouble with um, theorists like Foucault, who went back and looked at the history of sexuality in places like ancient Greek or in the Victorian era. Um, writers like Willem Reich, who talks about like the um, invasion of compulsory sexual morality, uh, building on things like Jung's shadow, and if you push out this notion of, of sexual energy and you restrict the methods of expression in sexual energy, you just end up with displaced uh, desire, and that displaced desire can result in violence. And so it's really hard to, to look at a topic like slavery, um, especially like for yourself as an American living in Ohio, and think about it in contemporary and think about it through a contemporary lens, yet at the same time, that umbrella has so many connotations that are negative within it that aren't necessarily true. Like, we don't know if you could be a humane slave owner, and maybe there were slave owners who were using their resources to actually provide a quality of life um, to the quote-unquote slaves like, well, so, how did so, Benjamin Franklin? How did Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Jefferson treat their slaves? You know, yeah, and we don't know. And I, and I do know. So I took this class in college called American Intellectualism, and um, there was this writer. So it's there's this interesting book called Cannibals All, and it's by this guy George Fitzhugh, and he goes down this rabbit hole and in defense of slavery, and he pretty much says slavery is. Because the South was more socialist, um, according to him. And he said that, uh, you know, it's it's a good socialist value or something. And I, 
this could be, I mean, I read this about 10 years ago, so it's hard to really remember. But the thing that always stood out to me was his whole defense of slavery was that he took care of his black slaves better than they took care of the white slaves in the North that would go to the factories. He said, if they get hurt on the job, they don't take care of them. They get paid less. I, I give my slaves a place to live. I give them food every day. I take care of them if they get sick. I give them a stipend so they have some money. Um, and who knows? I, I don't know if he even did half those things. It could have just been him talking shit. It could have just been him defending his region and defending what his livelihood, the way that he took care of his family, which I, you know, I, I think that's what drives most people. Like, I think morality is a joke. I think morality is something that people, it's a, it's a tool. It's so interesting because Arthur C. Clarke, a lot of people like this stupid quote of his of people think that religion gave us morality when it was the opposite. And I, and I disagree with them because I, I don't, I don't think morality is a good thing. I don't think that, um, I don't, I, I think morality is, is, is a tool to control people or a tool to make yourself feel better. Um, and I, I don't see a lot of good in morality. I'm, I'm a big fan of self-interested values. Um, for me, you know, I'm a nice guy, Nick, you know, you, you hung out with me. I, I can get, I can say some inappropriate things, but man, I want to make people feel comfortable. But why do I want to make people feel comfortable? Is it really because I'm a nice guy or is it because it's going to make it way easier for me? And it's like, you know, so, so there is this reward for me to be nice to people, but at the end it serves me, but it also serves them. So it's a win-win. So what's wrong with that? Um, it's like the Adam Smith approach. Like ultimately everybody is out for their own interests, but by being out for their own interests, society benefits today. I don't know how true that is. Like with, someone like Jeremy Rifkin, who wrote The Third Industrial Revolution, there are certain values that have emerged within the millennial generation that are completely different and unprecedented. Like privacy is something that isn't valued as much by millennials, according to Rifkin, because the value of being a part of a network and the social capital that is derived from being a part of a network is far more important than privacy. Now, how much of that I agree with, I'm not sure, but Rifkin certainly makes some interesting points about things like biosphere consciousness that haven't existed before and maybe haven't needed to exist before. I mean, remember that necessity is the mother of all invention. Like, in the ancient Greek times, in ancient Greece, um, they didn't have a need for any concern about global warming because they weren't contributing in the same way that contemporary society has. And there is certainly an argument to be made that the Industrial Revolution was a fork in the road and humanity as a culture, as a species, as a, as a community took the wrong option. Um, I'm not sure whether that's a hundred percent true, but if we, if we go back to this quote, oh yeah, keep going back to the quote, sorry. If we go back to the quote by Wendell Berry, I mean, we're talking about this idea, like, again, we're looking at a very interesting way that he's written where he's added this word, no, we would have killed no Indians, but really you're supposed to read it like we absolutely would have killed Indians. So 
the introspection that Barry is demanding here is one where we ask ourselves, how am I still behaving deplorably? And I think you were getting to that a little bit in the sense that, yeah, you're a nice guy, but you're not trying to hide behind this notion of morality. Now, you didn't define morality, so there's some problems there in terms yeah. of what you mean. Like, like a listener could hear it one way and another listener could hear it another way and all of a sudden we've got sort of a lot of noise and not enough signal in that particular statement. But I how, think... How would you define where, morality? Because I, I don't even know... When I think of morality, I think of people saying, well, this is a, it's a moral issue and stuff like that. And I look at the way people use the term moral and morality. Like, like whenever I hear what's the moral of the story, it's like, well, what's the lesson of the story? But I don't think the funny thing about the polarization of our times is that words are shifting their meanings. And I think and words have meaning. And so it is important that I define it. Um I think when people, man, I, I, I think when somebody says that's morally wrong, um, I, to me, I don't believe in right and wrong. Like I, maybe it's too, you know, maybe it is wrong. Maybe it's not. I mean, just, just like we don't, the whole thing with global warming, like we don't understand what the hell we're doing to the planet. We don't know if we're helping it. I mean, there was, I mean, what if, what if we were actually, maybe we were actually warming the planet so it doesn't freeze and we, and our species doesn't get wiped out. I mean, what if the sun is actually was going towards a cooling period, but we've changed the atmosphere so much that we've actually extended our life as a species. Um, we don't know. I, I, I think that well, we, we don't know. And we don't know whether the sun is even hot. Exactly. Like that was, that was an argument I made in one of the episodes, and it's ridiculous. I sound crazy asking that question, like, is the sun hot? It's a priori, dickhead. Walk outside and stand in the rays of the sun. Are you hot or are you cold? It's like, well, yeah, but there's a filter in our atmosphere. Like, how do we know whether the surface of the sun is hot? Well, and this is a, and it's a greenhouse effect that we have. I mean... Um, I, man, I, I really enjoyed that episode. That's episode six. But I, you know, I, I there's a really good YouTube video showing the 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 sin. Um, what is that called? The um, sin. I mean, it basically it actually when you look at the way that the planets are moving and the sun is moving. I mean, it actually explains you know the Fibonacci sequence in nature and everything else like that. Um, and, uh, but you know, the point of what I was saying about morality is, you know, I don't, um, I, I just don't, I, I kind of look at it the same. I, I would never, I don't try to look at things as right and wrong. I think there's things, I, I mean, I mean, I don't think it's good to kill other humans for sure. I, I, I guess that's, that's the one thing where I would, I would probably say, you know, if I'm not hurting anybody then that's okay. But who knows if I am not hurting anybody? Like, I don't, I don't know, but I mean, I, I try to, I try to look for how can I help myself and help as many other people with everything that I do. Um, so there's this thing then that arises here in this space of morality that you're talking about. And it's like, is morality imposed upon the individual versus individual virtue and individual values like if you want to be a really good piano player um you're gonna have that intrinsic motivation but it doesn't necessarily make playing the piano moral 
and you know it doesn't necessarily mean that if you become a really good piano player like you know Chris Martin of Coldplay and you play rock songs that doesn't make you an immoral pianist whereas there was certainly that view in the 1930s 1940s 1950s that certain types of music were not just immoral but actually evil so I guess that ties into what you're saying as well. The other thing I'll point out here is there's a fabulous play, and I forget who the author is, but it was made into a film starring Danny DeVito and Gregory Peck, and it's called Other People's Money. And what's really interesting in that film is the way that capitalism is portrayed, not as a moral cause, not as an immoral cause, but just as a game with particular rules that need to be followed in a particular way in order to be successful. And Danny DeVito plays uh, Larry the Liquidator. And Larry the Liquidator buys companies, strips them of their assets, and then sells them. And he makes a lot of money out of that. But he buys this one particular company. And Gregory Peck has this sort of sentimental attachment to it. And so he doesn't want to, like move the LLC from one state to another where if he just moved the LLC from one state to another, the company would be protected from Larry the Liquidator and all this. And look, I won't bore you with the plot, Drew, but there's this thing where Gregory Peck plays a character who is who is of the old standard of values, who wants to provide jobs for the community and do this and do that, but he's not innovative and the the company that he's wanting to protect is losing a lot of money. And the only reason it can stay afloat is because it's a part of a, a corporation that's consolidated a couple of different companies. So Larry the Liquidator wants to come in. He realizes that the assets of this particular factory are worth like $10 million, but it's just being squandered. So he wants to buy the company, like, you know, an aggressive merger or whatever, come in, take over the company and sell the assets, close the factory down, and basically stop the rot. Now, it's it's kind of a nice twist at the end, and I don't mind spoiling it, but because of what Larry the Liquidator did, innovation was able to happen. And when this company that was producing, like, um, wire, like really thin wire, um, there was no longer a market for it in the traditional sense. So... That's why Larry wants to close it down. But then he, because of his attitude towards the game of capitalism, he realizes that there is an opportunity to make uh, airbags for cars. And so not only does he reopen the factory, um, but he's actually able to increase the number of jobs for the community. So it's this weird thing of like, do we just play by the rules of a certain culture or do we play by the rules in a way that is quote-unquote moral? I, there's a spirit to the game. Um, like So is the spirit of the game to play it in an honourable way or is it honourable to play to the extent where you exploit the rules to create innovation. And I, I don't know if that helps in your conception of morality or not, but yeah, I, I'd be interested. No, that makes sense. I'd be interested to see what you think of that. Yeah. I mean, so for me, like, I think, um, you know, I, I kind of discovered, I think I'm more of a Taoist than anything. Like, um, there's a, there's like this story about, you know, uh, a young man 
uh, a guy his a guy he's a farmer and his son breaks his leg, and somebody says, "Oh, I'm really sorry about you know your son breaking his leg. It's awful." He goes, "You know, m- maybe it is, maybe it's not. It's maybe it's too soon to tell." And then the army comes the next day, and they they are trying to recruit people, but they can't recruit his son because his leg's broken. And they're like, oh, how great, how fortunate you are. And he's like, maybe it's good, maybe it's not, maybe it's, you know, and it kind of goes on and on. And there's these things, there's these series of events that keep taking place. And, um, and I, and, and for me, it's more, I kind of look at, I try to look at things in that, that light. Like, I don't, I don't really know if it's good, but I'm going to try to, you know, I have a decision that I can make to, to kind of try to po- see the positives or see the opportunity that, that presents itself um, and I think it sounded like, you know, from that, what you were saying, I think that's, that's, that comes from the spirit of the game. Um, and for me, the spirit of the game of life is just understanding that we don't really know, you know, uh, there's always good things that come out of everything. Um, or there's always things that can benefit you that come out of everything, or there's always an opportunity that's presenting itself, but it's up to you to see it for what it is. Um, if that makes more sense. And I think that was kind of what you were saying. So whether it be, oh, we're going to try to liquidate this company because it's not, it's not making any money anymore. And then on X, I mean, just look at, okay, Viagra came out of people trying to, it's a vasodilator. Like it was originally supposed to be like a good um, heart disease medicine, but they realized that one of the side effects were long lasting erections. So they're like, well, I guess we could actually market it for those people and it's actually really good for your heart and it's really good for your, your cardiovascular system because it dilates your blood vessels. Um, so, you know, it's... Uh, do, you, do you know that Rogaine, like the hair loss drug, Rogaine? Yeah. That's the same story. It started as heart medication and, yeah, <laughs> same thing. It's just it makes your hair grow. So yeah, so they if, market it as that. Yeah, so I think like for me, even when it comes to to starting a business, um, you have to be. I mean, and and I think you know I mentioned the author earlier. Like you have to be anti fragile. Like you can't you can't be too tunnel visioned because sometimes you're going to have to to switch directions. And I mean, even in you know even in your podcast, I mean, like I mean, even in this conversation, I mean, you're the you're you know you're the tangent general. We, we were originally talking about regionalism, and now we're talking about morality. And I think it it does tie in. But you know, we didn't know what direction this conversation was going to what what direction we were going to go in in this conversation. But here we are at this point, and I think it's I think that's that's how life is, and that's how a time is. And I think. Um, and something else, like there's a really good movie that just that uh, Scott Cooper made that has Christian Bale. It's out called uh, Hostels, and it's to me it, it's kind of the same thing. Like it it doesn't it it really tries to encompass every aspect of what was going on in that time. Um, you know, Christian. Well, it's the same thing. Like if yeah. we, if we if we go back to the slavery issue, right? So imagine that we were now having this conversation in 1830, and we were having this conversation at the stockyards, and we were bidding on slaves. And it's like everybody who's everybody is at that stockyard making a bid, and it's like, what can you do? Well, obviously, the right thing to do would be to try and free the slaves, but where are you going to free them to? 
Yeah. That's the big question. Like there's no point in quote unquote freeing the slaves. It's and and this gets back to Wendell Berry because he talks about Nigger Jim and yeah. the fact that Nigger Jim was always free. You know? He didn't have to escape. And at the same time, where was he gonna escape to? Like, okay, he leaves one plantation and goes down the Mississippi River, but he doesn't know what's gonna be round the next bend or round the next thing. And I and so this is like Okay, so maybe we do know how to act immorally. How, maybe we do know how to act violently and wretchedly and deplorably. But the thing is, Barry doesn't really define this word deplorable. I think that what we get from this quote is that the word deplorable is really a way of mapping our contemporary values onto a past uh, historical event and saying, look at how it doesn't match up. It's like, you know, if they had a his- history version of CSI, this would be like the forensics of history. And, and instead of looking for a match, you'd be looking for where it doesn't match. And you'd be like, look, it doesn't match. They're racist. They're they're homophobic. They're this, they're that. You know, it's like no match, no match, no match, no match. And it's like, well, of course, so- societies develop, societies change, regions change, like you were saying at the beginning of the conversation. Like, the difference between Ohio and California and the difference between California and even New York, um, and then <laughs> let's not even mention Florida. Yeah. And uh, like from an outsider's uh, perspective, from from an outsider looking in, there are two areas of America that dominate, and that is California and specifically Los Angeles and specifically Hollywood. Yeah. So that would be one. And two would be Florida because all the crazy lawsuits and and court cases and stuff that occur in Florida um, and the crazy crimes and, and, you know, the swamps and the Gator Boys and things like that. And then so, like, you know, there's your 80% and then the rest of America gets 20% of international airtime, so to speak. So, well, so I think that's interesting. So I thought you were going to say New York City. So, like, I... So ironically, like I live in the number one test city in the United States, um, which is Columbus, Ohio. And it's everything like the results you get here are pretty much scalable for every every city in the United States, with the exception of Los Angeles and New York City, because you could take um, you could take, you know, Michigan, Ohio and Indiana and it'd be pretty close to the population of New York City and Los Angeles. In Los Angeles County's economy is four times larger than Greece's. So I think it's um, when there's that much concentration of people, they are going to have different values than what I'm going to have because they have different things that affect them. So I, you know, it's, um, and I think, so sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, but, you know, I didn't even think Florida, like, because the, the funny thing is, is there's so many, Florida's growing so fast right now. It's like the fastest growing state. But it's because all the baby boomers from the Midwest are retiring and moving down there, like people from like Michigan and Indiana and Ohio. So they're they're going to take similar values with them. But it's it also feels like you time travel when you go down there. Like shopping malls are still relevant and things like that. But here, malls for the most part are dying out because it's younger people don't like going to the mall. They want to shop online, and older people still like to go out and shop and do their thing. So, and there's probably other reasons too, but different, different, different generations have different values and different generations interact with the world differently. And I think to, to, 
you can't paint everything with the same brush and you can't you, you know what i mean oh absolutely i think there is something though like you're talking about malls there and that made me think about the economics of retail and the you know we we're going to do a show maybe later next month looking at martin armstrong specifically so this can just be a teaser for that but in terms of the millennials in terms of my generation and i know you're a little bit older than me drew but probably not that much um i'm, in I'm be- 30 I'm in between all right so i turned 33 on sunday so i'm in you and i are older millennials um my bro- yeah i always considered myself like on the edge of gen x like i yeah. identified way more with gen x than i do with um you know the the millennials except um, we can use computers Right, but then you would look at a lot of the the Gen Xs who are, you know, into like, uh, you know, how many millennials are making Star Wars fan films based on the original trilogy? Not many. That's all Gen Xs. That's their thing. Yeah. So there's that aspect of it. But all right, look, I mean, I want to run something by you. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we've we've talked about morality. We've talked about slavery. We've talked about deplorability, and and all these things are in flux. There's no, and and this is the power of Berry as well. That I, I really encourage people listening to this to actually go and read the full article. Can you? Um, so the article I think you can only find um, where you got it, or you could buy it. The book, what are people for? And it's in there. Can you actually? Like, could we actually post a link for it? Like, put it in a Dropbox? Yeah, sure. In a Word document? Yeah, no, I'll, I'll post it I'll, on my show, I'll too. just, yeah, post it to your show, and I'll post it to my show, and, you know, we'll see how long it stays up there for before the uh, copyright police come after us. But, all right, so we've got this idea of, of, of these words that kind of have a duality to them, and you mentioned something there that I'm going to come back to in a minute, but the thing is, every generation, and... Look, in terms of the Martin Armstrong thing, um, to get back to that briefly, it's like, is this time different? I think this time is different. I think the millennials are in a massive state of crisis. Um, I think economically, philosophically, just socially, globally, environmentally, there are so many aspects of crisis coming together and we're going to see this get worse and worse and worse. And this is already very evident in the polarization that has taken place since at least 2014. But just one example of that, I used to be a big fan of Henrik and Red Ice Radio, and that show just took a complete hard right turn and started promoting Hitler as if he was some kind of uh, savior or some shit. Like the fascist equivalent of Obama, you know. Um, but so Barry is demanding this in, introspection to say, how am I as an individual still behaving deplorably? Which another way to put that would be in a in a two generations' time, in three generations' time, what are they going to say about us that they're going to be disgusted by, you know? Um, so That's a good question. Keep going. Sorry, I didn't know you weren't finished. So the answers are going to range wildly, but fundamentally there's an acknowledgement of shared human existence. And I think this is a lot like the myth of Sisyphus. And so um, Camus, the French existentialist, writes this book called The Myth of Sisyphus, and it's all about 
suicide and whether or not to kill yourself. And this is the number one philosophical question. Everything else comes after that, but it's really just a meditation on Shakespeare's to be or not to be. And this comes back to Barry because Nick Offerman suggests that Barry is a contemporary Shakespeare. He writes in the same level. So, you know, we have this shared human existence that is like Sisyphus and we are constantly attempting to push this boulder uphill, um, attempting to correct ourselves and our own deplorable nature. But ultimately, once we get it together, even, even as briefly as we can, we inevitably act in a retrobate fashion. The boulder falls subject to gravity and we begin the task anew. So, Drew, this is the big question, and you did mention it earlier. The, the big question that I need to ask you and that you asked to begin with is what are people for? Now, how this question is contextualized is everything. Who asks this question says an awful lot about the way that it's going to be answered. So I'll give you some examples of that, like – how does it sound when it's only slightly changed out of the mouth of, say, Hitler? So he might say, what are the Jews for? Or how does it sound only slightly changed out of the mouth of Henry Ford? What are factory workers for? Or Marx, what is the pro proletariat for? What is the proletariat for? Or out of Trump, what are the Mexicans for? Or even out of Jordan Peterson, what are the postmodernists for? Um you know, I'm really keen to see what your reflection on this question is. What are people for? Yeah. I, uh, ultimately, we have to be for each other. I think if we want, if we want any hope of, of making a difference or any hope of, of creating value for ourselves or our generation, we have to be there for each other and we have to be willing to collaborate and work with each other. I think personally as an American, you know, um, our main religion is individualism. Um, and individualism is like the spirit of America, but in reality, I mean, we should be looking for, instead of being individuals, being interdependent, and, or instead of independence, looking to be interdependent or to collaborate. So, you know, for me, like I, everything for me is my network of people that I've built and worked hard to build. I think, you know, going back to what, what, it, why, what is my podcast about? It's about building a network for me. Um, I love meeting people that like my show. Um, they're all so interesting and they all have cool hobbies and they all really, and it's, and it's, and it blows me away how much they, they appreciate me um, in my voice and what my show has brought, what kind of value it's brought to that. So, you know, people, what I think people are for is to, to create value for each other. I mean, I have a pretty optimistic view. Um, so for me as, as, as Drew sample, people are, people need to be for each other and, you know, we need to look out for, you know, as Joe Rogan says, I'm on team human. And I think it's important to where you look at, third world countries and developing nations, or you look at sweatshops or you look at people that work in the factories that build iPhones and you, you know, you, you want to have a, you want to have some morality about it or you want to put, put your own that's so immoral for them to live that way. But you know, maybe that's a way better way for them to live than what they had before. And who are we to decide what's good for them and what's bad for them? All we can do is open a door and hope that they walk through it. 
it's like the headline, white man saves Africa. Like, yeah. Every generation has their own version of that from Africa to – it's even like myself. Like I tutor, um, but I tutor on a voluntary basis at a local sports club. And a lot of the people there are, are African. And sometimes I have to really ask myself, like, what am I getting out of this? Is a white man saves Africa all over again, but on a micro scale? No, I mean, I think that uh, you're you're not a white man saving Africa. You're a man who likes to tutor. And I think that the people who you happen to tutor are Africans. And what you're probably getting out of it is them sharing their culture with you and them sharing joy and you having an opportunity to say, you know what, they're not that different than me. Maybe, maybe they didn't grow up with the same education or the same opportunities, but boy, they got here and they're working their asses off to make a difference and better themselves. I think for me, I always get along well with immigrants that move to the United States because, um, you know, it's, there's that old saying that Americans don't see the gold that's laying at their feet. Um, you know, I'm pretty lucky to be born in the time that I'm born. I mean, we're living in, you know, I, I don't, I see where you're coming from and I, and I, and I, I walk that tightrope of man, we're in it, we're in for a rough time or maybe we're really not. I mean, maybe, I mean, I think, I think that the biggest issue for our generation is they're growing up with social media and they're, they're struggling to understand what, what all this dopamine they get from all their notifications on, on social media and their cell phones. But I think, I think things just happen in cycles, man. I mean, you know, I, I'm a big advocate of saying that, you know, the reason why people act so crazy on social media is because you're missing like, you know, 80, 90% of, of how we actually communicate, which is through body language and through our voice inflections versus, I mean, just like what you were saying earlier, like, what are people for? Like me saying that, you know, in that way. So what are people for? And, and that could be me trying to make a point or, hey, Nick, what are people for? And I mean, that, like if, if it's just read on paper, or if it's read on some Facebook wall, it's easy to, to, to think that somebody's saying something else and it's easy. So people get triggered or it's easy to get trolled or to troll. And, you know, I mean, I'm, man, I, I don't, it's so funny because like I'm a big goofball in person and I'm, you know, and I, I try to try to make everybody's day that I come across better. And I think it's like, you know, I think that being conscious and having self-awareness is, is important. Um, so I, I, you know, when it, when it comes down to it, man, like you're tutoring because it's something you enjoy to do, man. Like you, you enjoy reading philosophy. Like I, I get a lot out of looking at how you, like there's things that I understand that I can't put words to. And when you put words to it, it's like, so that's why I like it that way. Like even with Wendell Berry breaking down, like I didn't know why that quote spoke to me so much, but I put it down and I sent it to you and I said, you know, this is what our topic should be about. What are people for? And you said, oh, that's great. What is that from? I'm like, well, that's a quote from a, an essay in Wendell Berry's book, What Are People For? Because the essay, What Are People For? is actually about farming. It's actually about why, you know, we went from small scale farming to replacing people with chemicals and tractors and and machines and we've and so we've kind of lost a lot of meaning and i think that's that's the search of our generation is how do we find meaning we don't have to hunt for food we can go to a grocery store we live in a very privileged time even the third world is living way better than what it lived 20 years ago 
And a lot of that materially, materially, materially. And, that, and this is the thing when we look at like poverty rates and the UN's attempt to eradicate poverty and we see like all these statistics come out. But, you know, if we get back to this Pareto distribution, like poverty is relative. And this is something that um, in my academic thesis that I'm finding out, and it's only early days, but so far it's like we are heading into a future where you're going to be living in, in, a, in a dualistic world, like a two-tone world, one where you've got digital abundance and one where you've got material scarcity. So we have people who are without a house or without the basic necessities of food, shelter, warmth, you know, being able to shower regularly, things like that, but can go into a McDonald's, sit down, um, drink a free cup of water, or even maybe if the people are nice, a free cup of soft drink to get a bit of sugar, to get a bit of energy. And then they can use YouTube. They could record to YouTube. Um, and yet, you know, in, in more traditional terms, these people would be homeless. So it's really a fascinating time in that respect. And what I really liked about this, and, and look, I mean, you sent a much longer quote. I've cherry-picked it uh, just down to one section because I did want to talk about the writing style and the way that, and, and we've harped on this a few times, the way that he uses the word no. I think in the question of, of what are humans for, he, he is using the word for in a very different way than we have been so far in this conversation. And look, I, I trolled you earlier in this conversation with the way that I set it up by, by using like Hitler's mouth, Trump's mouth, Peterson's mouth. Look, I'm not comparing Peterson to Trump or Hitler. I don't want that to be the takeaway here because Marx is in there too. But this notion of four has really two meanings. So we could ask the question two ways. We could say, what is the purpose of humans and what is it that humans aspire towards or what is it that people stand for? So, you know, if we're asking the question, what is the purpose of humans, then we can go down the road of, of things like slavery and, and farming and this and that. And we can look at how was the agricultural revolution a mistake like the industrial revolution was, like the Manhattan Project was, all these different questions that are very interesting philosophical that are very interesting philosophically. But we can also ask the different question, which is what do people aspire for? And so, you know, in light of Barry, perhaps we can opine on the question that you proposed, Drew, um, that it's it's the latter, you know, that what do people stand for? Now, I think if you read the article, there's a, a, a quiet pessimism and Barry kind of indicates it's the former. So if we play it out a little bit further, this quote, like I said, I did cherry pick it. So if we read it a little bit further, Barry says, there is the territory of despair where it is assumed that what is objectionable is inevitable. And so there too, the essential work is neglected how can we have something better if we do not know, if we do not imagine it? How can we have something better if we do not imagine it? How can we imagine it if we do not hope for it? How can we hope for it if we do not attempt it? So this is our answer. The purpose of people or what are humans for? Humans are 
here to imagine, to hope and attempt. And by implication, this is done through work and play. So humans are here to play. What are humans for? What is the use of humans? Play. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, I agree. I mean, that's a huge part of what we do. And I think, you know, that's something, um, I mean, it's just like how, how much time do we spend breaking each other's balls? Like we would have some deep conversations when we were hanging out, but mainly we goofed around. I mean, I was the, one of the first things I was going to say on the show was something about how Australians like hanging out at Hertz rentals. I don't know why it's something weird about their culture, but they really enjoy Hertz rentals just, just because you rented a car and this return took forever and it was, and we just, and it just, we just had a good time, man. It didn't matter what we were doing. We were goofing around and have and enjoying each other's company. Um, and something else I wanted to say so that the title, the way it's titled in the book, what are people for? So what are and for are all in caps. Um, and then for people, it's just a P, um, the first P that's in caps. So, um, yeah, man, I, I, I think, I think, yeah, people are here to play. People are here to, to figure out, I mean, figure things out for themselves. Um, I can't think of a, a better kind of, kind of way to see it. You have to find your, you have to find your meaning in, in this, in this society that, that you were born into, that you didn't choose to be a part of, uh, but you have to find your own path and it, and it can be difficult. It's, I mean, I think both you and I and Brett and Thaddeus and, and, um, uh, your last, what's his first, um, Doug Lane, Doug. Yeah. We're all trying to figure that out and we're all trying to figure out what happened here. What does this mean? How is this game being played? How am I missing out on this game? Why is this game so hard for me to understand? And, um, yeah, so I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, ultimately the way, like I'm, I'm very optimistic. I even think new us creating nuclear bombs were a good thing. I think, you know, there's a, um, we were talking about it yesterday about cracked.com's massive layoff, but David Wong or Jason Paragon, Paraquin, like, you know, he's incredibly optimistic. But when he was talking, he wrote this great article about Trump and um, why there was, you know, two different, two different realities going on with rural America versus urban America and the way urban America looks at rural America and the way rural America looks at urban America. And, and it, and I even think in, it's just, you know, cities versus, you know, the Bush or, or anything like that. Like there's different values, there's different cultures. Um, but you know, ultimately, you know, the, ultimately things are, things are always getting better. Things are always changing and humans don't like change. And it's terrifying for us, but we don't always understand why it's going to benefit us, which goes back to that movie that you were discussing. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm very optimistic. Like I am a realist, um, but I'm very optimistic. I, I always think good things are going to happen. And that for me, they usually do. And it could just be because that's, that's the way I choose to perceive everything. Um, but, you know, it, I, I, think, I think we have a choice. And I think the choice is... You can well the choice is how we interpret it at the level of the individual words. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, I'll 
I'm a firm believer that semiotics completely changed the landscape of academia. Uh, in, and, and really that goes to structuralism and, you know, Levi-Strauss and, and, and Saussure and people like that that laid the groundwork for later French intellectualism, and, you know, like, you know, Derrida and Foucault and, and others in that realm, you know, let's not forget Georges Bataille. Uh, the thing is that everything appears solid until it's not. So when we look at a word like for, we assume that we know the answer to it. But, and, and by that, what I mean is we assume that we know the definition. And most of the time we do because we can easily contextualize it. Our brains work at a rapid pace and we can communicate very easily with each other. But the thing is, sometimes there is an art to the way that we speak. And words can be very, very powerful because they produce images. When we hear someone talk like Martin Luther King, for example, even today, if you listen to a Martin Luther King speech and you don't get like goosebumps, I don't know what to tell you because there is something in his oration, there is something in the way that he has put together the sentences, the words in the individual sentences, that is very, very powerful in terms of the images it creates. I'll give you a different example altogether. Eminem, if you listen to the work of Eminem, now I would say these days I'm more of a fan of Chris Wiebe than I am of Eminem, but even still, if you go back and, and, and you listen to some of his big hits and you think about why they're big hits, it's not just because of the the message. It's it's the actual construction of the words themselves into the way that he's chosen to rhyme them. It's almost like if you took all the words and hit the thesaurus, right-click thesaurus and change them, you would actually lose you, you might retain the meaning, but you would lose the sensation of that. And what I fear, Drew, is that in this age of polarization, that's exactly what's happening. We're choosing to only accept one definition for a word when ultimately there could be three, four, five definitions for a word. And what's required is not our prejudgment, our prejudice and our immediate logic that we apply based on previous examples, but an open and exploratory um, approach to conversation that doesn't necessarily have an end goal in mind. Yeah. I mean, that's a possibility. I, I mean, it, it is annoying, I think, but I even don't like the way words meanings are being changed. Like the word Nazi and racist gets thrown around way too much in my opinion. Um, and it's because it's, they have strong emotional connections. I mean, I mean, a lot of it's even tied to, you know, marketing and public relations. And I think, but ultimately, man, I think there's more people that are waking up and I think more people are going to learn to educate themselves. Um, or maybe the, just the 20% that do are going to be powerful enough to influence the other 80%. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm definitely fear the same thing you do i just think it's all gonna work out <laughs> i don't know look i mean it can be depressing to go down these kind of roads of 
theory. I'm an academic, like so the way that I approach things, I look at the current situation, like when you think about this question, what is a sociologist for? Right? Yeah. <laughs> because that's what I am. So what is a sociologist for? Like what do you mean by that? What do I stand for? Or what mm. what is my purpose? I, I think th- that I thought you were purpose, a philosophy major. No, I'm a sociologist. I'm a behavioral science major, actually. Interesting. Or I was. But now I'll be, I'm getting my PhD in sociology. So I I think it's to be interdisciplinarian, to be able to paint as accurate a picture of the present as possible, and then to, within appropriate boundaries, speculate about what the future might be based on on the picture that I'm able to create of the present. Yeah. So it's, it's, I mean, the same thing you could say, what's a, What's a farmer for? What's a what's a entrepreneur for? What's a podcaster for? What's an artist for? You know what I mean? You could. I think the difference is that if everything goes to shit, um, a farmer has a lot more value regionally immediately than a podcaster would. At the same time, um, if we if we got to a global Armageddon with, uh, you know, I, I look as kind of fantastical as it is. Sometimes I think about what would happen if 2008's global financial crisis had played out. If the government hadn't stepped in and things really spiraled out of control, uh, there could have been a couple of weeks where you just would not want to go near a suit. Well, not a couple of weeks, a couple of hours. Really, these things would happen really quick, like. Um, a couple of hours where you would not want to go near a supermarket because even if you didn't have food, your life would be in immediate danger if you went to a supermarket. Now, if we think about that level of chaos, then, yeah, being a podcaster has no purpose. But being a farmer, as much purpose as that has, immediately puts your life in danger because you're a commodity. And mm. your knowledge is really worth something in terms of the sustenance of the region around you. Now, whether you're able to defend yourself adequately that you could restart society or if you got kidnapped or killed for your land, I mean, I don't know. But it's interesting how dependent we are on our environments and how little we want to pay respect to the precarious nature of those environments. Like, oh, we've cured smallpox, so that's never going to come back and bite us in the ass. It's like, yeah, maybe. Yeah. It's interesting, man. I, uh, I, you know, when I think about that too, I think like it would be a couple hours of craziness and then people would kind of chill out and I think they'd be like, okay, is this really putting an end to commerce? I mean, is this really going to put an end to like, it's, um, are people just going to stop trying to do business because, uh, the banking system collapsed or are they going to find a way to continue to do business and live that lifestyle that they're living? I, I think it's going to be the other, I think an alternative would, 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 would come out of necessity. Just like what you said earlier, innovation would happen. Um, because I, you know, ultimately people don't want to change the way they live. And I think that that's ultimately it. People don't. And I think a lot of times it's to their detriment. Like, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I could have fallen off a cliff when I got laid off and decided I'm going to start farming and make a, a lot less money, but I was 
I, I had some foresight and thought, Hey, I'm going to probably get laid off. It's going to be my opportunity to really quit the rat race. Um, but you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that maybe, maybe there's a few people that can just get people to calm down and say, Hey, you know, we, what are we, what are we freaking out about? You know, what, does that really affect our day to day here? Just like whenever the government shuts down, right? People are like, oh, it's a government shutdown. What are we going to do? And it's, you know, people figure it out. I mean, that, you know, yeah, I mean, some bad things are definitely going to happen, but bad things happen all the time. I mean, murder happens regularly. So, I, you know, I, I don't, yeah. I, it's, it's, it's easy. like when the FPOS system goes down. Have you ever had that situation like at Kroger's or something where <laughs> the FPOS system goes down for a couple of hours or it goes, you know, the bank's infrastructure yeah. has an issue. Um, people don't start looting. No, people get pissed <laughs> off when they can't use their debit cards that day. And they're like, well, I wanted to get groceries. Now I got to go. Now I got to figure out something else. People get mad. But I, most people, I, I think. I think it would be a lot like that, though. Like, the riots wouldn't happen. I think it's overstated. I think it's like the David Icke effect where there's this certain exuberance to the possibility of absolute destruction and even the they live effect where everything suddenly becomes really black and white. Um, and yet we see in our lives how much we don't want things to be black and white, how much we do want that nuance because, as I said, like the polarization that has occurred over the last three or four years is really damaging to the fabric of our social interactions. I think so. And I think a lot of it too has to do with people being obsessed with being right. I think uh like people get so attached to this idea that I cannot be wrong. And I like just even with the Trump election, like I I I bought into Trump winning the election a couple months after I saw Scott Adams first say it on Reason TV and I thought Scott Adams was crazy. And then I started I think it, then I saw don't stump the Trump and didn't even pay attention to the debates or anything. Cause I didn't care. And I was like, Holy shit. Like Donald Trump's pulling this off. Scott Adams looks like he was right. And then I kept reading his blog. He's talking about, how there's two realities. And I remember me and my good friend, Damon, we were the night of the election, the night before the election, we're sitting there like, are we wrong? Like I, I gave my parents like crazy betting odds. I said, I gave them uh, three to one odds that Trump would, Trump would win and they bet on Hillary. And I said, well, if Trump loses, I'm going to pay you $30 and you guys can each pay me 10. I was pretty confident. And then I thought after that moment, these two realities that were going on and coexisting would, would start to come into one. But now it's like they're becoming further and further apart. And it's incredible. Yeah, but then you hear those stories that like certain celebrities, you know, on the YouTube the day after there were, and I won't name names, but there were certain celebrities that were putting on a real show of like distress and despair that Hillary lost. And then you hear oh, that, man. like, I mean, you there know, was, there was behind people... the scenes. Well, yeah, but behind the scenes, it's all just publicity. It's like they yeah. were told that they had to present it that way. And, oh. and in reality, they didn't give a shit either way. I know that, uh, this person I used to work with was a hardcore Democrat. Didn't didn't understand like most Democrats or Republicans don't really understand economics or banking or what quantitative easing is or anything like that. 
Um, but you know, they think, well, this, the, I had a good job when this president was in office, so he must've been a good president, like really kind of short-sighted views. And, um, so when Donald Trump got elected, I had people like, it was so funny on Facebook. Like there was people that literally thought that, uh, blacks were going to become slaves again. And that all this crazy shit, man. I mean, it was, it was literally, you don't understand. You're not black. You don't understand what it's going to be like in the streets. And then nothing really changed. I mean, I'm sure that there was, I, I do know of instances where there were people that were anti-Muslim that said something to um, a gentleman I know that was Muslim and said, yeah, you can, now that Trump's in office, you can get the hell out of here and all this stuff. I mean, that went on. But then you also saw, you know, that mentally handicapped guy getting kidnapped and getting tortured and um, you know, I mean, there was, there was, it, it, to me, it was dangerous in, in an urban environment to say you were pro Trump. And still to this day, it's like very crazy, but a lot of that has to do with the media, man. And like, again, I think a lot of it comes back to public relations and, and how it, it's, it's very dangerous the way that our elections are more about entertainment and the way that television is, has, Television has become such an important part of people's lives. Um, I mean, what they perceive, I mean, even, you know, I mean, that's why I enjoy Jay Dyer's work so much because, you know, things are painted like even the, the Russian collusion thing that uh, the, the one guy just released. I don't even, I couldn't even tell you his name. The new FBI guy that everyone's like, is, is Trump going to fire or not? Mueller. Mueller. So Mueller pretty much came out and said that there's there's Russian agents out there. We can't really prove it, but they are. And it, and it sounds a lot like the television show, The Americans. Like, <laughs> like it's a popular show. So people are going to be like, you know what? I watched that on TV. I'm going to believe it. I got another. Yeah, the, the it's pro- like in the in the 90s, a lot of people like this was a big thing in Australia to make fun of Americans. If we get back to this notion of regionality and away from politics a little bit. But there was this thing that like. How crazy are Americans? Like thirty percent of them believe that the X Files is a documentary. Ha ha! Isn't it obvious it's a TV show? I really like to subvert that, especially with around people who don't really know my sense of humor, like acquaintances or people I've just met for the first time. Like I'll be having a normal conversation with them, and then I'll say something like, "Oh yeah, did you see that documentary about like?" the robots that were going to come in after the nuclear war in 1997. I mean, like that was a really scary documentary. And I think James Cameron really was able to uh, convey a lot of the truth about the future in that documentary. And it will just throw them for a loop because they, they kind of can't process whether I'm being serious or not because I've just used a word. I've used the word documentary instead of the word film. If I'd use the word film, they would immediately understand that I'm talking figuratively and metaphorically. But because I use the word documentary, they think I'm talking literally. And just for those who are really paying attention to grammar and, and, and definitional meanings in a dictionary sense, I mean literally as in literally and not literally as in figuratively. Yeah, a lot of people use literally and figuratively all the time, and it's so annoying. I'm always Well, like- the Oxford Dictionary actually changed it. They added to the uh, a sense to the definition of literally that says figuratively or, or that explains it figuratively. That's awful. 
Why do we? Well, it's, it is and it isn't, right? Well, so you yeah, can look at it two it's... ways again, because yeah. this is the nature of how we use language. Like, there's no set rules for how we should use language, and there's no set rules for why the word literally should have a definition that is 200 years old if in contemporary parlance we actually use it differently. And I think this gets to the heart of what our conversation today has been around, and that is if we if we sort of tie a few of these threads together, we're talking about slavery, we're talking about morality, we're talking about regionality, we're talking about polarisation, we're talking about millennials in crisis, we're talking about all these things. If we look at language and we look at the dictionary, Drew, I think we can sort of say, well, the dictionary is written by an acute observer paying close attention to the way that language is used. Or we can say the users of language should be acute observers of the way that words are defined in the dictionary. And it's like, which reality would you prefer to live in? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I live in the reality where, where <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, like Mike Judge's idiocracy. Like I love Mike Judge's work as an artist and it's, you know, idiocracy is becoming more and more real <laughs> in my, I, I, man, it, I, I don't know. I get, it, it's frustrating because it goes back to, that's what actually scares me is that we are, we are, I mean, it's the same thing that scares you is the way that, you know, words are being kind of, I mean, people use words wrong long enough. It does change their meaning. I mean, but I don't really like it. (laughs) But that's where we get to the morality question. Yeah. Because what is the right or wrong way to use a word? Yeah. I, uh, that's a good question. And then, and I think just the idea of right or wrong, um, (laughs) I usually take issue with anyways. So, uh, yeah, but then in your common language, you use it regularly in the sense of like, well, to quote you back, you said earlier in the conversation that one of the problems with polarization is that people want to be right. Yeah. So, and I want to be right. What does that mean? (laughs) Yeah. But I think, I think, but what, what's the real solution? So I could sit here and I could bitch about it or I could promote proper education, a, a good classical education of grammar, logic, and rhetoric, or focus on, you know, what Brett Finot focuses on is, is unschooling and people teaching themselves. And I think ultimately like that's, that's, I think that that's going to go a long way. I think, you know, and, and I think it goes back to self-awareness. It goes back to, um, you know, a lot of stuff that you share in your show, like the lady talking about the, the compass of yes and no. And is this a yes for me? Is this a no for me? And being aware of that. And I think it all goes back to self-awareness. I think intelligence in reality, in my opinion, um, I like that, in reality, in my opinion, um, in my opinion, what intelligence is, is self-awareness how aware are you of yourself because if you're not aware of yourself how are you supposed to be aware of anything else um true and that's like all right so let's just dwell on trolling for a minute um i've for this podcast i've recently launched a facebook page that i can more easily manage i had a different facebook page but i'm that's become defunct now and i'm focusing my energy on a on a new Facebook page, which you can access from the uh, tangentgeneral.com website. But 
the name of the show is actually the Transcendental Tangent General. And that first word is quite important in terms of understanding where I'm coming from and contextualizing this show, transcendental. And I mean that in the Kantian sense of knowing that there is something beyond the ability of perception and of the beyond the ability of the human mind to contemplate or even understand at any level, um, let alone a high definition level, that is out there. In other words, that it, it's like the Baudrillard notion of the real, which was made very famous by the film The Matrix, when Morpheus says to Neo, welcome to the desert of the real, and it's just completely white, or it, it's anything really. Like Again, it gets back to that fluidity, which is a notion that Zygmunt Bauman puts forth a lot in terms of liquid modernity, liquid life, liquid love, liquid risk, all of that. <clears throat> I think where I'm going with this is that there is a transcendental element. Like there is something definitely beyond us as individuals, as people, as conscious sentient beings. And we can access that, but just not in the way that we would consciously with something like a dictionary where you look up a word, it's, it's hard to explain. And, and that's the beauty of it. Um, from a Kantian perspective, it would be the nomial world, the world that we have absolutely no access to because we are embodied through our senses, through our brains, through our ability to process nervous system signals in the phenomenal world. So I think that word is really important. And I was trolled on my new Facebook group or my new Facebook page. Um, and again, I won't name names here, but a gentleman asked the question uh, on one of the posts. He's like, so transcendental, is that like transgender? And I'm saying it that way because that's how I read it. <laughs> and so I was like, in the most neutral way I could, no, transcendental is about like understanding a plane of existence beyond human perception. And he wrote back, oh, well, that sounds a lot like transgender to me because transgender people think they can live a life beyond the plane of gender. And I'm just like, what? So I wrote another reply just kind of politely shutting him down. But <laughs> it's just interesting, like trolls are a part of the internet ecosystem and they're an important part of the internet ecosystem. But if you you got to be able to laugh at them. And I think yeah. that's the thing, like Wendell Berry – has a very good capacity to laugh if you've looked at any of his YouTube stuff. He talks about very serious, deep topics, but he does it with a sense of laughter. And I think when we really consider how virtual our lives have become and how disconnected from nature we've become, it's just incumbent upon us as individuals to find a way to go for a walk, to breathe fresh air, to take our shoes and socks off and actually put our feet in dirt, in soil. Like, that's all it is. It's the compound effect of consistent little action. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, you have, to, you have to ask yourself, what do you really need? And it's you need to eat, you need to sleep. And usually you need to like reproduce or, or have a significant other. I mean, you, you have a plate, you know, a roof over your head, but you know, ultimately we get caught up in all these things that we don't really need and we don't need relationships with. I mean, 
my smartphone is like a, a part of me, right? My phone is, it's, it's, uh, but ultimately I spend too much time on it. Like I, it, like it fucks with me. It creates a lot of stress for me, but it also creates a lot of shortcuts for me. It also creates like a lot of good things for me. So, but it's, but you know, we've had cell phones for less time than you and I have been alive. I mean, especially smartphones. So it's such a oh, yeah. thing that we don't know how to deal with it. We don't know how to, and it, we don't understand. There are, there are strategies. And one of the things I would suggest is that you take control over notifications. And I'm not just saying that to you, Drew. I'm saying that to the listening audience as well is, especially if you're creative, you can get lost on Facebook. Uh, you can get lost on the scroll, you know, so it is important to take control of your notifications. And I don't just mean turn notifications off or something as crass and, and rudimentary as that. I just mean like consciously pay attention to what information you want coming into you on an automated basis rather than you having to go and seek it out. Like those notifications will still be there if you allow them to build up and believe it or not, people won't get that pissed off at you. If you don't reply to a Facebook comment within two minutes of it being posted, like yeah. it's not going to hurt your score in terms of your social rank. If you only go on Facebook once a day, and maybe that means you're on Facebook for a whole hour once a day. My girlfriend's brilliant at it. Um, you know, I'll text her things like, Hey, can you get milk on your way home? She'll come home. I'll be like, did you get milk? And she's like, no. I'm like, but I messaged you. And she's like, I didn't check my phone. Um, and she'll only go on Facebook at like 10 p.m. at night because that's when it suits her. So, you know, horses for courses. I live on Facebook because I'm trying to manage a business on Facebook. But there are ways to mitigate the intrusion into your life and to maximize the um, benefits that you can derive from it. And, you know, like people like David Allen who wrote Getting Things Done before the advent of the internet have put out some very clear foundational things to think about if you want to get more organized and want to get more peace of mind. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I think uh, I, I I'm all about that strategy. And I was going to say it even applies to television. Like I don't, I don't. I mean, I, I try not to watch anything with ads. I don't like advertisements in general. I don't want things to rent space in my head because that's what they're designed to do. Um, I want to make sure that when I when I come at something, that it is my thought or it was inf my thoughts were influenced by things that I wanted to influence my thought. And, um, so yeah, I mean, for, for me, uh, I was, I was more talking about, uh, just the, uh, the, in general, the effect of change or just our world and dealing with our current world and kind of trying to tie it back into how we don't, we don't understand what we're doing with technology, but we, but we can try to, you know, it's, it's a tool. And we can try to use it to, to enrich our lives and set us free, or we can allow it to enslave us. And I think that's ultimately for me to kind of, you know, there's always the choice. And I think, you know, for me, free will is a choice. And I think it's something that you have to earn. And I'm a, I'm a, 
I agree with uh, the, you know Brett and Jay Dyer had that good conversation, and it's 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 not. Um, I think there's you know there's things in, that are in place, just systems that are in place, or I just think in general that we don't even understand. There's so many different aspects of of our lives or of our of our of of commerce or things that we don't understand that can control us or we can learn we can learn about them and then we can learn to navigate through them and then learn to let it help us if that makes sense it does and fortunately by the same token there are things that we do understand and there are things that we do know what to do in regard to say commerce and and there are people that we can reach out to teach us about various aspects of what we what we lack in our knowledge foundation. All it requires is that we be a little bit open to it. And I would like uh, the audience to be open to the idea of what it is that you have to sell commercially. So, Drew, we'll wrap up the conversation here. I think there are some good uh, threads that we can pull on next time we talk for the show. Absolutely. Uh, in particular around Martin Armstrong and the notion of free will. And uh, so I'll get to work prepping that after I release this episode. But tell the listening audience, Drew, uh, where they can find you and, and how they can give you money. <laughs> oh, that's great, man. I never thought about that. So. Uh, you can support me on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash sample hour. Um, there's also PayPal links on samplehour.com. PayPal changes quite a bit. I think the easiest way, though, is just give me a dollar a month. If you like my show and you like my content, you can give me more money a month if you'd like. Um, but, you know, little as little as a dollar a month, you can support the show. It goes a long way. Um I, I appreciate it, but even if uh, you don't want to support it and you like the show, just send me an email. It's thesamplehour at gmail.com. I love talking to people that I've never met before that listen to my show. That's the that's like one of my favorite things in the world right now is being able to meet those people, meet you people, you people, um, and, and f- learn about you and why you like the show or why you like things that I said or why you relate to me as a human being. So I, I appreciate it and uh, encourage people to reach out to me. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Drew. And um, we'll have to get you back on the show soon. Cool. Thanks, man.